0: We've got the Bible reading coming up on the screen in a minute, but it's from Acts, and it's chapter 25, and we're reading right through chapter 25 and going through to the beginning of chapter 26.
1: Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews, who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they couldn't prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up from to Jerusalem, and stand trial before me there on these charges. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought... brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar. To
0: Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand anyone over before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I didn't delay the case but convened the court the next day and ordered the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be handed over to, the, to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him.
1: The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he has done nothing deserving of death, but because he has made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Paul,
0: you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently.
2: Well, thank you so much. Uh, Well, welcome today and particularly if you've come because you've been brought by a friend. I think it takes enormous courage to come to a church when you don't normally come. Uh, because you can be uncertain about what they do and what they believe. I remember the first time I went to church, people were standing up and sitting down at all these weird times. I had no idea what to do. I felt like a fish out of water. So if you've come, don't be afraid. I'm really glad that you've come today. You know, when I first accepted Jesus, one of the most natural things that happened was I I wanted to tell people about it, Uh, because now I'd I'd come to know God personally. And I knew I was forgiven through Jesus, weight off my shoulders. And um, I didn't have all the answers, of course, but I knew that the core of life, I'd got that right now. And I knew what life was about. And I thought that what God had done for me in Jesus was so wonderful that it surprised me that other people didn't seem to get it. And in fact, other people were threatened by what had happened to me. And so I began trying to tell people and then I made all these clunky mistakes. I clumsily found myself getting into arguments and I thought I was wrong, but I thought if I could win the argument, I could win the person. And then I realized that, you know, very quickly, that winning an argument is not the same as winning a person. And they're two very different things, and it's not the way you win a person. This happened to me last July, so we didn't, even though I'd been Christian for ages, right, so Norella and, and I invited some friends around to our house um, for a Christmas in July thing and a dinner, and around the fire afterwards, we did this thing that we do with our Advent calendar where we pull out you know, sheep and camels and whatever, and construct a nativity scene, but then pull out verses as well and get people to read them out to tell the story. And as we were doing this, one of our guests, Julie, said, um, without too much thought, she said, but we all know this is just made up. Now, she hadn't thought that much before saying it, but it's a very natural reaction, isn't it? This has to be made up. But she was saying that to a church pastor, right? And... (laughs) Really, if she'd have thought just a little bit more, she would have realised that she was saying that after years and years of study, I was persuaded that it was all fake, but I was making my living peddling a lie. And I was massively deceptive and through and through. I don't think she'd got that far. It just sort of came out. But on the spot, I then had to respond and on the spot then, I took a breath and then said, Look, I suppose you'd think that if you weren't aware of any evidence. And then, probably for about four minutes, I went through evidence, right? And then silence. <laughs> I became that guy, right? Who wins the argument, but not the person. Later on, of course, I looked back and realized what I should have said. Now, maybe you're. you're here and you've been on the receiving end of such an answer. And I just wanna say I'm really sorry, okay? (laughs) Forgive our clumsiness, I don't mean to be mean, right? It it matters so much to us, you know? (laughs) Or maybe you've been like me and you yourself have done something like this. And look, so that we don't do it again and so we don't offend people we love, of course, what we then can do is slip into silence you know, and we just let the conversation move on. And we, what we're doing is we become defensive in ourselves about offending people, lest our defense of our beliefs causes offense to other people. So a poor way is to win the argument but not the person. Thankfully there's a better way to speak and that's to turn our defense into offense, not offense, offense, as in being deliberately offensive, right? But just like a soccer team, when a soccer team plays to win, it has to concentrate on the offense, not just defense. Now, to win people, we need to move from just defense to offense, okay? But I wanna say there's a way to do it without being offensive, okay? So in seeking to share Jesus, how do you play the offense without being offensive? Well, the Apostle Paul shows us in Acts chapter 26, and we just got up to the edge of that, didn't we? And uh, now I'm going to speak on it, okay, and we'll hear what Paul says. Now, this is the fifth time in this uh, series on Acts that we have heard Paul defend his faith. Here, Paul is now before the highest authority that he has spoken to and will speak to in the book of Acts. He is before the Roman governor Festus and a young King Herod. And uh, the Romans, the Roman government had given authority to the temple and its precincts to Herod. So he was an influential figure. And in Paul's defense, we're about to hear for the third time the story of Paul's conversion to Christ. If you like, this is round five, third play. Now, you might, if you've read through Acts, you might think, I've already heard this twice. (laughs) deja vu. This account has details in it that others don't have. And even more significantly, we, we learn from Paul and from the Holy Spirit how to move from defense into offense without being offensive. And I say that because back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told his disciples, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities... Do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. What Paul says in Acts chapter 26 comes from the Holy Spirit. This is inspired words. So the Holy Spirit is teaching us how to win people. So how do we do it? Well, firstly, with respect and grace. Paul shows us this. Here's Herod and Bernice, his sister, who've come with great pomp, and their purple robes, and their crowns, with Governor Festus, uh, the high-ranking military officials, prominent men, and then there's Paul, and legend has it, he was short, he was bald, he had this whopping big beak for a nose, he was bandy in his legs, he was unimpressive, he was weak. And he's in a prisoner's uniform, And this is how often Christians are seen, unimpressive, weak. And yet despite Paul having been imprisoned for two years already, waiting for this moment to arrive, despite standing before one of the Herods whose family have been consistently against Jesus, you know, wanting to put him to death, wanting to stamp out the movement, Despite all of that, Paul doesn't snap, he doesn't blurt out frustration, he doesn't give vent to any anger. Instead, he addresses Herod with respect and with grace. Isn't that remarkable? And in fact, it's just like we're, to, we're told to do. Um, Peter says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He's in control, Right? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. Peter says, when we answer people in our hearts, we're to set about Christ as Lord, trust that he's in control, and then, Answer people with gentleness and respect. Paul himself writes in Colossians 4, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer everyone. It doesn't give you the content, but you know how, the manner. And this is what Paul shows. He's polite. He addresses King Agrippa by his title. He says he's fortunate to stand before one so familiar with Jewish customs. He begs Agrippa to listen to him patiently. He is not argumentative, and then he establishes common ground, so he moves through his way of life since he was a child, which was common knowledge to Jewish people, as was his religious observance before becoming a follower of Jesus, and more than that, he he shares the common hope they have, the hope in the resurrection of the dead, that's why he's on trial. Now, Herod, of course, is of Jewish royalty. Paul is now effectively saying, and by the way, Herod, This is what you also should believe. As a believing Jew, I'm no different to you in that respect. We share this together, right? Yeah, we do, okay? He establishes common ground. And next, Paul gently challenges defeater beliefs. Now, a defeater belief is a belief which someone can have which rules out any possibility of them placing their trust in Jesus. A defeater belief might be one which says, there is no God, or miracles can't happen, or science has disproved God, or Christianity is all just a made up story. Those are defeater beliefs. My friend Julie had a defeater belief. But here's the thing I tried to hit that defeater belief with a sledgehammer and prove to her that she was wrong, Paul shows a better way. He just gently challenges it. In the case of Herod, Paul knows Herod probably doesn't share the Jewish belief in the hope of resurrection. And so he challenges that belief. Why should any of you think it incredible that God raises the dead? That would be silly, wouldn't it? Basically, he's saying... Without arguing about it, he challenges people at least to think that it's possible they might be wrong. You're opening the door up, right, for them. In the case of myself and Julie, I could have said, you know, do you really take me for such a fool that even though you've thought for three seconds and I've been studying for years on this that I am wrong and you are right. That would have been rude. (laughs) and argumentative, and disrespectful, and you know, ungracious, and set up a conflict. A better way would have been for me to gently challenge the defeat of belief. Julie, why do you think that if God is real, he couldn't have made all this happen, as well as actually announcing beforehand that he was going to make it happen? Well, I suppose if God was really could have done that. Ah. And then, poof, it goes. <laughs> okay. Um, we can gently challenge defeated beliefs. And then Paul, next, sets out what God did in his life to change him. That is, he told his story. And he begins by saying what he was like before he became a Christian. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Now, you or I, we we may not have such a, a testimony to say, but. You might say, well beforehand, you know, I didn't know any Christian people. Or you might say, beforehand, I thought I was a Christian, but that was only because I wasn't a Muslim or a Buddhist. It was, I'm Christian by default, because isn't Australia a Christian country? Or maybe you would say, no, I was actually someone who was really against Christianity. Or you might say, look, I believed in a higher power, but I didn't know who that was, he or she or it, I, I had no idea. Or you might say, you know, beforehand, I like the idea of God, but it was Christians who put me off. Whatever was true for your story, you know, you just say what I was like beforehand. And then Paul quickly moves on to how God showed himself to Paul, how God stepped into his life and opened his eyes. This is the conversion story that literally changed the history of the world as we know it. Paul's conversion. He said, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, and then about noon, King Agrippa, as I was standing on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. He quite literally saw the light. This is where that phrase comes from. He goes on. He says, we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul saw Why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if Jesus spoke to you directly, do you think he'd say something like that to you? (laughs) A goad, we think, what's a goad? A goad is a spiked stick that was used to drive cattle in a straight line. And Paul would have known that. So these words really mean, look, Paul, it's hard for you to resist now going in the way that God is now guiding you. You've seen the light. And then Paul asks, he said, well, well, who are you, Lord? It's a natural question. Well, I tell you what, the answer could not have been more surprising for Paul. He was a persecutor of Jesus, wasn't he? He was doing everything he could to oppose the name of Jesus and then he sees this light, which he obviously knows is from heaven, And the answer comes out, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replies. Now, whoa, talk about a change, something to turn your life upside down. Paul had thought he was so right in doing everything he could to oppose Jesus, and yet in doing that, following that path, he had been completely wrong, 180 degrees wrong. And so it is with many people today who oppose Jesus, who think he's a hoax or worse, they don't really know who he is, sorry, but they don't know who he is. Paul has now seen the light, literally. He is seeing Jesus' glory. And now, whereas he was blind in the past to Jesus, now he is blind to everything else, because that's the only one he can see. It's filling the horizon of his life. Jesus' glory. And now in understanding who Jesus is, Jesus then gives him a new purpose. Get up, stand on your feet. Not, please get up, or here's what I would like you to do if that fits in with your life. Just get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. To open their eyes. Now you or I might think, why doesn't why haven't I had this experience, right? Well, Jesus is saying here, this experience is unique for Paul, but I am sending you, Paul, to others to open their eyes. Paul's eyes have just been opened, but the other people, they would be open through Paul's message, right? Not through this amazing vision, though God could do it, but it's the normal method is through the listening to the words of Paul. People's eyes will be open, just like happens today, okay? I remember not long after I'd become a Christian, I went uh, for a walk in the bush where we lived with my mum, who wasn't a believer, and she asked what would I like to do with my life, what were my thoughts? And I remember plucking up the courage to say to her, Mum, look, I think God is so wonderful. If I could, if it was possible, it would be great to spend my life, my working life, telling people about him. Now, of course, that's not possible for every Christian to have you know, this full-time gig, thank you. Thank you <laughs> for giving me the chance. But knowing Christ, which is true for every Christian, gives every believer a new purpose because Jesus sets us free from living for ourselves to live for someone worth living for. We, we're set free from becoming these self-absorbed, selfish, self-focused, you know, little to our own, you know, life achievements. Well, how awful is that? He sets us free to live for someone really worth living for. And that is true for you if you're a believer. He has set you free not to live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again. And now we notice that in Paul's explanation of how God changed him, did you notice, he includes an explanation of the gospel. Um, Jesus says, and he really did say this, Paul's not just inserting it, He says, I'm sending you to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's how Jesus describes it. You know, when someone's eyes become open to him and they receive him as Lord, it's like they leave darkness and come into the light. And they really do because they are set free from the power of Satan and become under the power of God. Now, now that might sound extreme. If you're sitting here, you're not a believer, you're saying, look, I know I think differently to you, but I am not a Satan worshiper, right? Um, Well, that's what you think. But remember, remember, in the Bible, Satan wants everyone to be blind to Jesus' lordship. That's what he wants. And if you're blind to Jesus' lordship, you're under his power, therefore. But when you see Jesus' lordship, you're blind no longer. He sets you free. You move from darkness to light. And the result is twofold. First of all, forgiveness of sins. You know, the weight, the accumulation of guilt for things done throughout our life, it's gone. God does not hold these things against us anymore. It's just wonderful. And the second thing is, when someone turns to Jesus, they belong. They have a place amongst those who are set apart, sanctified by faith. You belong to a new community of people defined by faith in Christ. Well then after Paul has shared what God has done to change him, he then speaks about his consequential changed life. And we can speak about how things have changed for us too. Speaking of himself, Paul says, so then King Agrippa, here's the change. I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. And that is why some Jews in the temple courts seized me and tried to kill me. He's saying, look, I didn't do anything wrong afterwards. On the contrary, I was being obedient to God. And in fact, I urged other people to do the same. I urged them to stop ignoring God And turn to God and live a changed life. And then he shares how things have changed in his own personal relationship with God. Of how he knows God has been with him in his life. He says, but God helped me to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. And we too can speak of that. We can tell of the difference in our lives now that we know God is with us. For myself, when I became a Christian, when I told my high school friends, and this threatened them, they made life very hard for me. Very, very hard. But Jesus proved to be a much closer friend to me than my high school friends. He didn't give up on me. And God was kind. He gave me new friends as well as my old ones. So what I'm saying is we can speak of how things have changed in our lives because of our relationship with God. Paul did this and in so doing he kept sharing the gospel. He slipped it in when he explained how God opened his eyes and he slips it in again when he speaks of his new life and becoming a Christian. He says, I stand here and testify to small and great alike, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, here's the gospel, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So when you're telling your story, keep sharing the gospel. That's the point. Okay, because it's about Jesus, not really about you, okay? Now at this point, Festus has had enough. Maybe like some friends who you've been talking to. And he interrupts Paul, and he shouts, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you Insane! You heard that one before? <laughs> okay? It's exactly the same predictable reaction to the news that there is a saviour king once dead, now alive, not seen, but ruling the world who we're making the most important person in our life. And people will say to us, that's insane! And maybe you've said it of Christians, that's insane! It's not an inspired reaction it's a cheap attack, and when you think of it, it's, it's really the poorest of arguments, because it's writing off the whole person. Call someone insane, you can discount everything they say. But that doesn't prove that what they say is not reasonable. And this is how Paul counters. And the great apostle Paul now turns, I want you to see this switch, he's turning from defense to offense. He's been defending his faith, now, even though he's in chains, he goes for it. Um, But his aim isn't to win the argument, but the person. In a sporting match, if your team only ever plays defense, you're gonna lose. You have to play offense. If you're sitting here and you're a believer in Jesus and you only ever defend, okay, no people are gonna be won. We've gotta go into offense, right? And Paul shows us how. He aims to win the person, not the argument. So he doesn't put down Festus. He speaks to him calmly and respectfully. He says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. And then remarkably, (laughs) Paul appeals to Herod for support. He says, the king, is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. Please see this, right? In the lifetime of those who were around, um, they knew what happened to Jesus. It wasn't made up. People knew about it, okay? Now the fact that we've got those words and they weren't counted gives us great confidence in the historical reliability. This wasn't done in a corner. Paul's now on the offense with Herod. He poses Herod a respectful challenge. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. He doesn't politely go quiet. He respectfully pushes the envelope. He builds on what Herod, if Herod really was a believing Jew, should believe. It's a bit like saying to Prince Charles, who is the future defender of the Anglican faith when he becomes king, it's a bit like saying to him, Prince Charles, you personally believe the claims of Christ, don't you? I know you do. Well, how could he who's about to be the defender of the Anglican faith say no? But if he says yes, you've got him, right? Now, we can do something like this. If you're speaking to someone who already knows the truth, you can say, you believe that God predicts things ahead of time, don't you? From there, of course, you can talk about the Old Testament expectation that the dead would rise. You can talk about Jesus' own prediction that he himself would rise from the dead, and these things came true, and because it comes true, this changes everything. This is the step I think Paul's trying to make. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Herod is no fool. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Now that is the first time the word Christian is used in the Bible. Now what would you have said if you were Paul? Well, being spoken to like that by a king, I probably would have stammered something not very effective and you know, put my foot in it. But immediately, I want you to see this, Paul answers and it comes straight from his heart and this tells us about the heart of an evangelist. He just says, without skipping a beat, short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. What a brilliant answer. Do you hear his heart? Short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. He doesn't want to be in chains, but neither does he want anyone to live with the emptiness of a Christless life. He doesn't want anyone to live with the hopelessness of a Christless life. He doesn't want anyone to live with the lie of a Christless life. He doesn't want anyone to live with the disaster of a Christless life, he wants people to become like him. Now remember that the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul at this point. And so last point, how do we become like Paul? God has been kind to many of us, and just as he did with Paul, God has opened our eyes to Jesus as the risen Lord of all. If you have turned from your sins to know Christ and to follow him in this chapter, God, through the Holy Spirit, he has set out for you how to become a gracious evangelist. Because that's what Paul is to us. It begins with a heart, it starts with us treasuring what God has brought us. So if you have joy in Christ, if you have comfort from his love, if you have peace from being forgiven through him, then please cherish it deeply and concentrate on it and rejoice in it because this, not your education, not where you live, not your family of origin defines you. This defines you. And the more you concentrate on this, the more you want to share it with others as well. And then, of course, you'll be thinking of the person. You're not insecure. You're not needing to prove yourself. You're not needing to win the argument because you've set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. And yes, you'll talk, therefore, to people, but you'll talk to win the person, not the argument. That doesn't give you a big tick. You want to win the person. And so you respond with respect and with grace And you'll establish common ground, and you'll gently challenge those defeated beliefs, which you know are a blockage. And you'll share your story, what God did to change you, and then what's changed in your life. And should anyone react and call call you crazy, you'll share your heart goal for them. You'll open up, and you'll say, my heart is that you would come to know Christ, just like I do, because he's real, Okay, so if you already know Christ, become like Paul, the gracious evangelist. But, of course, not everyone in this room will know Christ like Paul did. And maybe you have sympathy with Festus. You Christians are insane. (laughs) Maybe that's what you're thinking. And yet you've never seriously considered Christian belief that it could be true or reasonable. And that's the step you need to take. Talk to someone. Or well, maybe you're like Herod. You know, you know that there's truth in what's said about Jesus, but though you know the truth, you don't want it. You're kicking against it, like Paul, kicking against the goads. And like Herod, you're sitting here thinking, do you really think that in such a short time as being in church this morning, you can persuade me to be a Christian? Well, either way, whether you're like Festus, you Christians are insane, or Herod, I don't want to become a Christian. You don't know Christ, that's the truth of it. You're not like Paul, who though he was in chains, he was free. Think about it, he's respectful, he's gracious, he's not resentful, he is the most dignified person in the room, he's free. And if you don't know Christ, I want to say to you this morning, you can become free. You can become free from your guilt. You can become free from your shame. You can become free from being insecure. You can have the freedom of knowing a purpose in life. You can be free from purposelessness of not knowing why you're here or what life's about. You can be free of feeling empty even though you pretend you're not. You can become free like Paul, like lots of people in this room actually, free by coming to Christ. Now, I don't know if I've been able to persuade you in a short time to become a Christian, but maybe I have. And if it's the case for you, I'm gonna invite you to do it, and it's very simple. All you need to do is to say a simple prayer, and if you're ready to do that, i would ask you to pray with me now. Will you you pray this prayer with me? Loving Heavenly Father, um, I realize now I've been in the dark. I didn't think I was, but I have been. I've been blind to Jesus, In fact, I've been blind to my own blindness towards you. I've been blind to my sin and how serious it is, the sin of ignoring Jesus, who is the most important person in all the world. But you've opened my eyes. And through listening to Paul's words, I now see Jesus in his glory. And I now see myself as having been in darkness. And I see how free Paul was, and I want that freedom. And so now I turn from the way I used to live, to accept Jesus Christ as Lord in my life. Please come in, please take charge, please set me free, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, If you have prayed that prayer, um, you need to tell someone. Tell the person who invited you, or if that's too confronting, tell someone else who you know has been a Christian for a long time, and they'll direct you in what steps would be helpful for you next to take.